This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And today, MPB is fulfilling its responsibility to citizens of the state of Mississippi, and we'll be broadcasting gavel-to-gavel coverage of the U.S. Senate impeachment trial beginning at 11 a.m. today, immediately after In Legal Terms. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It's great to uh, be with you this morning, and I'm really, really excited to have Professor Charles Stotler with us. He is uh, the uh, co-director of our LLM program, which is a master's in law program in air and space law. And I don't know that a lot of people know that we have that program. And Charles, would you tell us a little bit about that program? Certainly. So um, the, uh, a master's of law is a, a kind of specialty degree that lawyers can do after they graduate from law school and have a, a Juris Doctor degree. Um, and it's a focused, uh, intensive, um, year-long program wherein you drill down on uh, a specific area of law, and in our case, it's a- uh, aviation and space law. Um, but in, also, we are now just recently offering a certificate in air and space law for non-lawyers, um, so people who are working in the aerospace industries who might want to have some more information on law and policy issues can come and take our law school classes um, as a sort of continuing education uh, type curriculum. Well, why would Mississippians be interested in that particularly? Well, Mississippi has a long history, uh, in particularly in space, and there are a lot of aircraft manufacturers uh, and uh, companies that deal with maintenance for aircraft here in Mississippi. Um, on the space side of things, um, the Stennis uh, Center down on the on Gulf Coast, I mean, it's part of the, the Space Coast, as they call it. And so Mississippi has a long heritage in both aviation and space law issues. Fantastic. Well, I know that you know there's a lot going on, and Liz, we, we you know we, we you and I have uh, talked a little bit uh, you know, through email and everything about the Boeing 737 Max issue and and some of the problems there, um, and uh, there are already lawsuits filed. Hey, tell us a little bit about what's going on with with that. I mean, there, there's a lot. Certainly, yeah, there is. There's quite a lot going on. But um, before we get into the lawsuits, I think we should step back a moment and consider for a mo- consider that. Um, commercial aviation is still the safest way to travel in the world. Um, there seem to be have been a lot of accidents, particularly, particularly over the past year. Most recently, the shooting down of the Iranian aircraft, uh, or excuse me, the Ukrainian aircraft in Iranian airspace. Um, there was the MH17 accident a few years ago. The shoot down there, um, and so it seems like there have been a lot of accidents. But take for instance. 2017, it was the safest year on record for aviation ever. There was not a single commercial jet fatality in, in 2017. Um, and people estimate what the, the rate of accidents are. And, and generally speaking, um, it's on the order of one crash for every 16 million flights, which is an absolutely incredible safety record. And a lot of that safety record has to be attributed to Boeing and their emphasis on safety as well as um, Regulators like uh, the FAA in the United States or um, EASA in Europe um, that uh, oversee um, both aircraft manufacturing as well as airline operations, um, and so it still is the safest way to travel. Um, and it's it's a uh, it's a real tragedy when these incidents occur because they're such high-profile accidents, um, but they sort of mask how safe the industry really is. 
Absolutely. Well, I, I drove back from Charleston, South Carolina yesterday, 11-hour drive, uh, and I can assure you that I, I saw a lot uh, more unsafe behavior uh, in that and that 11 hours than I do typically on a, on a flight. But uh, well, we appreciate you being here. Well, and Professor I, Gershon, I'm glad you did have a, a safe drive because this show would not uh, be the same without you. We're so lucky to have Professor Richard Gershon, who... Um, remotes in each week for In Legal Terms. If you have a question and you want to participate with In Legal Terms, we're talking about aviation law today with Professor Charles Stotler, the Associate Director of the Program of Air and Space Law from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We would love for you to call in today. Our number is one 877 mpb ring That's one Eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You could also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Well, thank you, Liz. That's that's important. We would love to have the uh, listeners participate. And uh, you know, I was thinking that you know there are a lot of people impacted by the Boeing issue. I know I was in Charleston, and Charleston has a, a Boeing operation there that has been impacted certainly in Seattle and Kansas. They've had some issues as well, so they're all over the country. What exactly happened from a legal point of view? Um, well, that's uh, that's a really interesting question, a really long story. I mean, the, from the legal and regulatory perspective, um, so the, the the 737 has been a uh, a staple in the Boeing family for a long time. Um, the aircraft dates back to the 1960s um, when the first 737-100 was produced. Um, and then also the 737-200, which was a slightly longer version. Um, and that aircraft was extraordinarily successful, and it continues to be extraordinarily successful. Um, in the 1970s, and uh, uh, between the 1970s and the 1990s, Boeing revamped that aircraft and produced um, a series of, of new 737s that were updated versions. And then in the 90s, um, it created uh, the 737-NG, which is the next generation. And all these aircraft are extraordinarily safe, and they've been extremely successful. Um, and But one of the most interesting aspects about what happened with the 737 MAX, I think, is the relationship between Boeing and the FAA and the regulator um, that deals with the certification of aircraft. Um, when Boeing was considering uh, an update to the 737-NG, the next generation, um, it was in heavy competition with Airbus, which has um, was a which was a little bit ahead of the game in producing its next generation A320, which is the competitor with Boeing 737, um, and. Uh, American air carriers actually started uh, to purchase more um, uh, Airbus A320s, and Boeing knew that it had to um, make a decision about which direction it was going to go, whether it was going to um, create a whole new aircraft or do another update to the 737. Um, and people speculate now about what the rationale was for um, going to an update uh, as opposed to a, new, a whole new aircraft. Um, to produce a whole new aircraft, the certification process is much longer, um, so there are, are much there are greater regulatory constraints for dealing with a new aircraft as opposed to an update to an older model of an aircraft. And there also involved in that are um, additional training for pilots and crew who are working on the aircraft and maintenance um, crew who are working on the aircraft. 
And so at some point in time, it was decided that it would be better to do an upgrade of the 737 rather than um, produce a whole new aircraft. Um, um, one of the features of the 737 is that its wings are slung rather low. Um, and um, going back to, tw- to 2012, um, when uh, it, late 2011, early 2012, when the Boeing made the decision to use to do an upgrade to the 737, already um, folks were speculating that it might create some issues because the new engines are larger and they don't they didn't fit underneath um, the wings. And so, um, as the, the the larger, more fuel efficient engines were mounted on the aircraft, they had to be put forward on the wing, um, which really changed the dynamic. The, the aerodynamics of the aircraft, um, and so uh, and that created some issues um, with the the plane's nose um, rising very quickly during slow flight and during um, high angles of attack. And to compensate for that, Boeing created um, something called the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System, or the MCAS, which you've been hearing a lot about in the press. And what the MCAS was was essentially a software solution um, that would force the nose of the aircraft down during these moments when it was um, rising too quickly. Um, So essentially what you had was, uh, from an engineering perspective, a hardware problem in that the, uh, the engine's position on the aircraft created a, a, a hardware problem uh, in which there needed to be some kind of solution, and Boeing's solution was to create a software solution uh, to that hardware problem. This uh, amazes me as you know someone sitting from the, the peanut gallery that not only do lawyers who decide to specialize in a subject matter not only have to know the law, they then have to delve into the particular particular type of law they're going to practice. Uh, it uh, makes the extra masters in air and space completely understandable and worthwhile that you can understand and, and learn about all these special issues that concern aviation law. Uh, Professor Charles Stotler, we're so glad to have you, Associate Director of the Program of Air and Space Law from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We're going to continue our discussion of aviation law after the break. If you have a question, please call us, 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-672. 7464. You could also send us an email, legalterms at mpbonline.org. And Professor Stotler almost gave away the answer to my little trivia tease. You see how well you can extrapolate what he said. From 2009 to 2018, how many fatalities as a result of accidents involving U.S. air carriers, carriers, essentially the airlines, do you think there were? We'll be back with that answer from the United States after this break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. 
You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Until 2018, there had been no passenger fatalities, fatalities, sorry, as a result of accidents involving U.S. air carriers since 2009. In 2018, a Southwest Airlines flight accident involving an uncontained engine failure resulted in a first passenger casualty of that time period. This morning, we're talking about aviation legal issues with Charles Stalter, Associate Director of the Program in Air and Space Law from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And Liz, I, you know, I really do feel so like you mentioned uh, the fact that Charles has background in, in not just the law of aviation, but, but the mechanics and the engineering of aviation. And, I, and so sometimes you call me, refer to me as the expert. I'm really the, <laughs> I'm really the lifetime learner here. And I, I really am so lucky to work with uh, great people like Professor Stotler. And he is, uh, you know, t- taking us through some of the, the issues. And uh, Charles, you know, the, to me, it seems like if there's a software problem that may have been there and a hardware problem and then the plane crashes who do you sue in that case who's the who's liable well that's a very interesting question and unfortunately as with most things in law the answer is it depends um backing up again a little bit about this software hardware issue um you know part of the part of the interesting thing about this problem is is this issue of wanting to of Boeing uh, not wanting to go through a full certification process of a new aircraft. And so when the new engines were put on the aircraft, um, I've heard it said by colleagues that uh, ostensibly it it changed the aerodynamics of the aircraft, which essentially made it a new aircraft, which means that, um, you know, were you designing this plane from scratch and doing it that way, you would have to certify it if it were a new aircraft. and the fact that it was an upgrade then changed the process that was used. And so one of the questions that arises on liability is whether or not uh, the processes that FAA used were the right processes for certifying the aircraft. Um, uh, there's a lot of that is outsourced these days, and, and that's actually a good thing. So um, a lot of the certification process is outsourced by FAA to Boeing, which might sound bad, but um, considering the economics of it, considering that um, uh, it's extremely costly. It would be extremely costly to the taxpayer to have uh, all of this done in-house by FAA. It's actually a really good thing for the FAA to be working hand-in-hand with Boeing to certify the aircraft because Boeing are the experts on it. Um, yeah, and so, but one question arises as to whether or not there could be any liability for the FAA. Generally, um, government is, has immunity from suits, but in the United States under the Federal Torts Claims Act, um, there are situations in which a regulator might be held liable uh, in situations like this. And so that's an interesting question. Um, but generally speaking, the lawsuits are your, your, the sort of classic lawsuits that come out of an airplane accident. So um, the families of the passengers obviously had filed suit, and Boeing has been settling a lot of those suits. 
um, recently. Um, but interesting here, the pilots have also filed a suit uh, against Boeing um, because of overlost pay, because of the grounding of the aircraft. Um, airlines are also demanding compensation for the cost of grounding the aircrafts, and the aircraft are grounded globally, so right now you could not get on the 737 MAX. Um, but there are also um, uh, derivative complaints being filed by shareholders. And so um, this is when a shareholder seeks to act on behalf of the corporation to hold the directors and officers liable uh, for the actions of Boeing. Um, and so there are a host of different kinds of lawsuits that have been filed uh, in the wake of the 737 accidents. It's so interesting. What about the employees? Do they have, you know, if I'm an employee and I was laid off because you know, this airline has been grounded. I mean, it's just a question. I don't know that we have an answer, but I, I don't know that they have any recourse. Well, I'm, I'm not sure about that either. I think that's a really good question. To my understanding, there haven't been any layoffs yet, but um, the, 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 uh, the aircraft, they have stopped manufacturing them now just, I think, as of a month ago. Um, so there are rumors that perhaps layoffs could be coming. It's, it's so fascinating. Now, you know, um, so Boeing is, is clearly implicated because it's their aircraft. What about, I mean, you know, when an airline, when an airplane is put together, there are a lot of subcontractors. I think about my house, you know, there are a lot of subcontractors when my house was built. Are there any subcontractors with Boeing that could be uh, subject to suit as well? So this would, this would be as a result of a products liability suit. So there are two, there are, there are generally speaking, um, very generally speaking, two kinds of suits that might be brought. One would be for passenger liability, um, so passenger injury or death. And then um, that would be brought against the airline itself. And then um, uh, products liability suits at Bo uh, against Boeing that also could deal with passenger liability and death, but based upon whether the product is safe. Um, and with, I, I, my, with traditional products liability suits, I think liability flows to the, um, generally to the, the actor that puts the product in, into the market. But then there are circumstances wherein, say, Boeing might be able to recuperate something from a component part manufacturer if it were discovered that there were some faulty parts within the aircraft. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, the other thing is the airlines themselves who have had to ground flights and cancel flights because they can't fly the 737 MAX. Well, that, that's, that's a really interesting thing because under, um, so under international law, there are some international treaties that deal with passenger liability and death, and the airlines are held strictly liable. Um, so regardless of whether it was Boeing's fault, the airlines are still going to have to compensate the passengers. And that happens even with things like the shoot-down of the Iranian aircraft. Um, there have been situations in the past where, because of national security concerns, a state has shot down an aircraft, and it winds up being the airline on the hook to pay all the passengers in that situation. So Ukrainian Air, for example, if they're a part of that treaty, would have to pay the passengers' families even though it was not their fault? That's correct, yes. Now, would they have any recourse? Do you have any recourse against a, a, a foreign entity? Uh, that's a very good question, and, and, and again, it depends. So there was a situation in 1988, a tragic situation, where actually the U.S. shot down an Iranian aircraft, uh, an Iranian civil passenger jet. Um, and initially, the U.S. Um, did not want to pay compensation for that. Um, the Iranians filed a court case with the International Court of Justice, um, claiming that the U.S. was responsible. Um, and ultimately, the U.S. relented and settled the lawsuit and paid, I think, something on the order of $61 million to the families of the passengers on board. So there are means for um, 
families to get compensation. But um, it, it, there's, there are no guarantees when you're dealing with diplomatic issues like that and international relations. How can people get in touch with us if they want to uh, join the show? That's very easy. You have a couple of different ways. You can email us. Our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Or if you have a question you'd like to ask over the phone about aviation uh, litigation, give us a call. Our number is one 877 mpb ring. That's one 877-672-7464. We've got Professor Charles Stotler, Associate Director for the Program of Air and Space Law from the University of Mississippi School of Law, and he's speaking with Professor Richard Gershon and myself today on aviation law. Now, Charles, you know, uh, you talked about the Iranian situation, and so now, where are those disputes handled, and how are you know how you know how? And you mentioned also, I'm, I'm going to jump to another one. You mentioned that Boeing has been settling cases with people. Where, where who do who do people go to to resolve these disputes? Well, in the instance of um, an accident regarding Boeing aircraft, suits tend to be filed in Cook County, Illinois, because Boeing's corporate headquarters is in um, Chicago, and so that's the venue where you always see suits being filed if there's some sort of products liability issue. Um, when dealing with an airline, it really depends on, on a lot of factors. And so, for instance, um, if it's a purely domestic uh, incident, you would go to the – in the U.S., you would go to the state of incorporation of the airline, or uh, in certain circumstances, I think you could file in, in your home state, um, the state of domicile. When you're talking about internationally, the difficulty is that an airline might be operating to and from a country um, but not really have a corporate presence there. And so the treaties that deal with uh, passenger uh, injury and death um, set forth several different jurisdictions wherein you can bring a lawsuit against an airline, including um, the place where the ticket was purchased, um, the place where the passenger, uh, the place of departure of the aircraft, the place of landing of the aircraft, um, uh, the place of uh, incorporation of the aircraft. And so there are several different venues where you might seek redress uh, if you're if there's an injury or death on a on an international flight you know it's, it's so interesting to me that that when i when i think about this area i think okay there's we know airspace and so now we're going to start getting into space which is part of what our llm program talks about uh, and a lot of it seems like it's also similar to what happened with ships on the ocean too because they weren't really on anybody's territory at that time are there a lot of similarities between the three of those kind of laws or they have a common heritage, and that is law of the sea. And so, a lot of what ha- a lot of a lot of the debate in the early nineteen late eighteen hundreds, early and early nineteen hundreds surrounded um, how the principles had developed very slowly over hundreds of years, um, uh, vis-a-vis interactions at sea could be adopted to be used for aviation. And then those same principles were examined again when space law was being developed. And and there are some commonalities. Um, it, it tends to be a bit dangerous to reason by analogy because these domains are so different, and they really should be treated differently. Um, but, yes, there are some commonalities between the, the various regimes for the sea, the air, and uh, now outer space. So a lot of that is really just because there's not – you know, if something happens in the United States and we know we, where we go, we know which court system to go to, but it's, it's confusing when you start getting – 
internationally or you know in space and so this is where you come in and, yes. uh, my favorite part in uh, the movie uh, the Martian is when they make the argument that he's a pirate because he's out in space and maritime law applies I don't know that will have that'll be another show we'll we'll get into to see if that is a, a actual uh, movie logic from movies is it really legal <laughs> we're talking with Professor Charles Stotler, Associate Director of the Program of Air and Space Law from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We would love for you to give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464 for your questions. You could also email us at legalterms at mpbonline.org. He's, we've mentioned the FAA a little bit, but what are some of the authorities over aviation in our country? We'll tell you after the break. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon, he's our expert and kind of ringmaster here. We hope you'll subscribe and download our podcasts. There are many different podcasting platforms. I like Podcast Addict. Other people like Stitcher. Some people use Spotify. You download it to your phone. Then you take a, touch a plus or something takes you to a page to search for podcasts. Maybe it's got one of those little magnifying glasses. Then you just type in the name of the show. If you know the show, the show's name, ours is In Legal Terms. Put it in the search area, and it'll bring up our show. You, you know it's our show because it's got our little logo on it with the columns, and it'll say MPB. You just touch the photo. You can subscribe if you like. That way you're notified when any new episodes are loaded up. Or you can go back and listen to a number of our shows that we've had for the last few years. This morning we're talking about aviation legalities. Our guest is Professor Charles Stotler, Associate Director of the Program in Air and Space Law from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We've, we've talked about all the expertise that aviation lawyers have to have, not only the law uh, experience and knowledge, but the aviation knowledge. But then there's so many different regulatory organizations. The commercial and regulatory issues and connections with aviation include the Federal Aviation Authority, the FAA, the Department of Transportation, DOT, National Transportation Safety Board, NTSB, 
and the Department of Homeland Security's Transportation Safety Administration, which we lovingly call the TSA. Yeah, Charles, talk a little bit. I mean, so who has authority over what when we talk about aviation? Then? Uh, so what is the FAA, FAA versus the NTSB? What, is, what are the differences? Sure. So FAA is um, its primary mandate is safety. Um, and so it, it's the FAA that does things like certifies aircraft, um, provides um, certificates of airworthiness, also deals with air traffic control issues. Um, so, again, safety is the FAA's mandate. Um, the Department of Transportation um, deals more with economic issues. Um, it's the entity that would, say, issue a license to an air carrier to operate or issue a license for a foreign air carrier to come into the United States airspace. Um, it also deals with consumer protection issues. Um, and so the, the DOT's mandate includes um, dealing with issues such as tarmac delays and um, cancellations of flights and things like that. Um, and then uh, the NTSB is the entity that's responsible for uh, air, aircraft accident investigations. Um, and then you have your security apparatuses, which are um, TSA, which deals with they're the people you deal with when you're entering the airport and boarding the plane. And then CBP, who are the people you deal with when you're coming off, um, particularly on an international flight that's customer, custom and border protection. Um, and those are the folks that, uh, that you deal with when you're trying to re-enter the United States. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you mentioned all, all those entities. And I was thinking about the, the new certificate program that we have. And so who would be interested in that program, and, and, and how would they maybe interact with some of those uh, authorities? Well, sure. So the new certificate program is for non-lawyers. And um, generally, uh, the, the target audience would, is people who are working in the aerospace industry, say, as an engineer, um, and who might want some more information about law and policy aspects. Um, so maybe someone who's transitioning into middle management or an upper echelon position and, and, wants, and has a technical background but wants some better understanding about law and policy. Um, but the program is open to anyone who has an undergraduate degree and an interest in aviation or space law. Um, and so uh, you can tailor the curriculum uh, to focus on either space or aviation. Um, some of the people we have coming into the program are interested in one or the other. We, for instance, have some pilots who are coming into the program um, who just want to little, learn a little bit more about uh, law and policy for aviation. Um, and then we have some pilots who are coming into the program who say, I think I understand that stuff. I want to learn about space. And so, uh, you know, it, 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 all, it really depends upon interest. Okay. Can, they, can they take the class remotely? Is that or classes remotely? Yes. So yeah, we offer our classes online for the certificate students, um, and uh, you can you know sit in your home and watch live or watch the lectures recorded. Uh, if say uh, you, you're too busy with work and you need to catch up at the weekends. And can, if, if someone wanted to apply to the program, how would they do that? I go to our website. It's all explained there uh, on, on our um, Center for Air and Space Law website and on the law school website. There's a portal um, within the program in Air and Space Law that uh, provides links to the applications. And, and Liz, go ahead, Liz. I'm sorry. Well, we have a call. We'd like to bring in Brett Bradley from Tupelo to our discussion of aviation law. Bradley, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, I was wondering, what is the kind of legal framework for weaponizing space, um, either public or private? I could imagine a scenario where, <clears throat> pardon me, 
where a company like SpaceX says, I'm going to put a you know, launching satellite into space and what can be done about that? What's the, you know, who can do what about that right now? Or a, you know, another nation, say India, wanted to do something along those lines. Sure. Thanks, Bradley. That's a great question. The um, so That's a hotly debated topic right now in space law circles. Um, there's a treaty dating back to 1967 called the Interspace Space Treaty that prohibits the placement of nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in outer space. Um, but it doesn't prohibit uh, the placement of other kinds of weapons. It does mandate that space should be used for peaceful purposes. But um, the interesting thing about space is that um, you know, it's one one person's hammer is another person's weapon. Um, so, a satellite that can say do things like on-orbit servicing, which means going up to another satellite and fixing it, that satellite could also be used to disable another satellite. And so, uh, it's being hotly debated right now what 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 would be a weapon in space, what constitutes a weapon, whether or not it's legal to put a weapon in outer space. Um, but the larger concern at the moment are things called anti-satellite. Um, uh, Missiles, so missiles that are fired off that go up and destroy a satellite. That's sort of the the main pressing issue on that front. And Charles, you actually uh, did a uh, show um, before and talked a little bit. I asked you about space force, and you talked about the fact that one of the greatest vulnerabilities we have in this country is our satellite exposure is so great that uh, if someone wanted to take out our satellites, they could knock a lot of us off the grid pretty quickly. Surely, yeah. I mean, I mean, space is um, the United States is more so than any other country um, reliant on space technologies, from uh, particularly with GPS and communications. I mean, everything from your your bank transactions um, to the stock exchange to um, the GPS that you use on your phone, and these are all dependent upon space technologies, um, and. Um, and, yeah, so the United States is particularly reliant on space, um, which is why it's such a, a hotly debated issue about these anti-satellite weapons. Yeah, Professor Charles Stotler was our guest on September 25th, 2018, when we talked about space law. Individuals can listen to that. You can find it on our website, inlegalterms.com mpbonline.org. You can also find it on our podcast. If you have a question about aviation uh, law, we would love for you to be a part of our show. 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org and as we have already found out uh, treaties are only as good as the people who decide to uphold them isn't that right yeah so i mean how do we how do we enforce treaties that's a great question in in the aviation law area you know if uh I guess the same question could be, you know, how do we enforce laws generally? But within the United States, we have the rule of law. What do you do with countries like Iran, which a lot of people will say is not uh, one of those countries that has the rule of law necessarily? Sure. I think, I mean, so, you know, anyone walking down the street can perpetrate a, perpetrate a crime. 
Um, and that doesn't mean that the legal system doesn't work. And the same is true for um, countries uh, in the international space. I think for the most part, most countries like following treaties because it's, it benefits them um, and usually benefits them economically. And then most other actors in the international space also like to follow the treaties. So, for instance, the treaties that deal with aviation liability for passenger injury or death or for cargo loss or baggage loss – um, they traditionally have protected the aviation industry through things like liability caps. And so both countries as well as the airlines that operate from those countries like to see those treaties enforced. And um, particularly with those treaties, a, a litigant can walk into a court and rely upon them. They create a cause of action. So, uh, you know, you can walk into any court in the United States and produce um, the Montreal Convention of 1999, which is the convention that deals with liability for passenger injury or death, and you can um, plead under that treaty and have your rights enforced. Um, so I, I, you know, I I think that international law is actually much more powerful than people think it is, um, primarily because people want to follow it most of the time because usually it's to their advantage. That's true. I think countries want to, too, as well. You know, it's, they want to make sure that within the international arena that they get fair treatment for their citizens, too. Certainly, yeah. And, I mean, particularly in, in aviation and space, um, many of those agreements, such as um, the, the rules that are created at the International Telecommunications Union, for example, um, benefit companies within countries enormously. Um, you know, people want to see the system work because ultimately you can make money. Right, right. Um, well, I, I know, Liz, I know we're having such a great discussion, but I know, unfortunately, we have to take a break soon. Is that right? Yeah, let's take our last break. Then we can move on to our, our last segment. So we just have a few more minutes if anyone wants to participate with aviation law questions with our guest, Professor Charles Stotler from the University of Mississippi School of Law's program on air and space law. Our number is one 877 mpb ring. That's one 877-672-7464. You could also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. One more segment for our show. We hope you're enjoying In Legal Terms on MPB Inc. Radio. A contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show, inlegalterms.com mpbonline.org. That's way number one. Way number two is the MPB Public Media app. Way number three is our podcast. And folks, you can listen to podcasts from smart speakers, from your cell phone, lots of different ways you can listen to podcasts. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. We've been talking with Professor Charles Stotler from the University of Mississippi School of Law's uh, Air and Space Law Program. If you are interested in hearing more about this, we also did a program on September 25th. 
2019, uh, 2018, sorry, that one was titled Space Law 2018. And now we have a couple of phone calls on the line. Let's go to uh, Chris, who's calling from Columbus. Chris, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. I was wondering what kind of laws um, are there in place in Mississippi now that uh, have to do with drones? Thank you. Hi, Chris. Thanks. That's a great question. So um, uh, I've only looked into drone law in Mississippi a little bit. There is a statute uh, that deals with um, peeping Tom type issues. So uh, drones flying up to a house and, and trying to look in. But your question's interesting because um, I think that's about it uh, currently on the books. And um, I actually have a student right now who's, who's drafting some proposed legislation for Mississippi um, to better deal with drones. What, do you, what kind of laws do individuals hope will be in the future? That's a good question, too. So I think the, there, are two, there are two issues here. First is that um, uh, states can take measures to uh, deal with drones, um, but the amount that a state can do is circumscribed to some extent by what the FAA does. And so the FAA rules would preempt state rules, um, and the FAA has been, over the past several years, putting out new and more rules on dealing with drones. Most recently, they put out um, a notice to create new rules dealing with identification issues. And so if you have a drone flying over your house, how are you going to figure out who's operating the drone if you don't want it to be there? Um, and the FAA has proposed a means for uh, identification through these new proposed rules, and we'll see how that plays out. Um, they're not, they're not uh, regulations yet, but they could be in the near future. Thank you, Chris, for calling on calling in. Let's go to Gary now. Gary's calling from New Albany. Uh, Gary, we'd like. Uh, what's your question or comment for the show? Well, Doctor, you uh, pretty much just answered the question because that's what I had. I, I'm a retired Bobby Ole Miss uh, in school of engineering technician up there, and uh, I recently decided to go ahead and start flying drones. And I went ahead and uh, uh, got my FCC uh, uh, registration in, in order, tagged all my tagged my two drones I've got, and then while I was reading up on uh, the procedures for you know fly, flying in my local airspace, uh, you know I uh, of course I called our local airport because I'm about three and a half miles from it, and they said oh you know good as long as you don't go more than two or three hundred feet off the ground you know and our and follow all the other rules, uh, which you know are outlined. You know, of course, on uh, the FCC website or one that they set up for that. And then I come to find out that they've got a proposal that requires uh, this uh, uh, ID of all drones. You know, its location and everything, everything else. And I'm just wondering if. This means that uh, my hardware is going to become suddenly obsolete and illegal to fly when they approve this. Uh, my understanding currently is, is, is no. Firstly, this this process takes a while, um, and so it's unclear when uh, or if these new rules will actually become actual regulations. Um, but I'm not I'm not sure about the grandfathering issue of whether or not if you have you have a drone you're operating it prior to the ID. 
uh, taking over uh, the ID requirements, um, what will happen in that situation. Um, truth be told, I haven't actually looked at what the proposal is for the ID yet. It's sitting on my desk, so I'll, uh, you can shoot me an email, and perhaps we can discuss a little bit more. Gary, and if you want to email the show, uh, you can do it. Our email is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Or, you know, Professor Chris Stotler is, uh, Charles Stotler is Googleable, so you can find his information for the University of Mississippi School of Law. Thanks, Gary, for calling in. Let's go now to Lee, who's calling in from Jackson. Lee, what's your question or comment for the show? Uh, Stadler mentioned those organizations that have some sway over uh, flight, uh, the FAA, et cetera. I, I, where does where does ICAO, which is the International Civil Aviation uh, uh, Organization, it's out of Montreal, Canada. My father-in-law was was in the upper levels of management of that organization for many years, and I understand they established standards for international flight, international airports, and all that. I just wonder where they fit into the equation. Sure. It's a great question. Thanks. Thank you for the question. The um, So ICAO, or the International Civil Aviation Organization, is a U.N. specialized agency, as you said, based in Montreal. ICAO's mandate is primarily safety, um, so it's similar to the FAA, and what it does is it creates um, standards that are up to be applied uniformly. Um, in international flight. So these are the standards that are in effect, say, over the high seas. Um, but countries are also, um, in order to facilitate interoperability between regulatory regimes, countries are also required by the treaty that's set up ICAO to try to make their rules domestically, um, keep them in line with the international rules. Um, and so um, what happens is ICAO makes rules the FAA implements those rules and uses them, but the FAA also can put in more stringent rules and create additional rules. And the FAA really is the heavy lifter when it comes to ensuring safety in the, in the United States. So the FAA would implement some of the rules from ICAO, but then it, it has a much more of an operational uh, mandate um, when it comes to safety, and it creates additional rules. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Well, this is, I mean, this is so fascinating. I mean, it really is. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that we haven't gotten a chance to talk about, maybe we could do a whole show on it because we're, I know we're going to have to wrap up soon, is what about my rights as a passenger? Okay, for, you know, all the safety issues, fortunately, we, we usually do travel safely. But what about those, you know, if I have a complaint because the airline canceled my flight or my flight was uh, severely delayed or I was stuck on a tarmac, how do I handle that complaint as a consumer? Sure. Well, so the, the, it's the Department of Transportation that makes consumer protection rules in the, in the United States, and they've created um, regulations dealing with things like contingency plans for lengthy tarmac delays or oversell or denied boarding, uh, refunds, um, uh, and then on things like advertising and pricing increases. Um, generally, in the United States, uh, compared to, say, the European Union, there are fewer passenger rights. Um, but there are situations where uh, if you're denied boarding, say, which is referred to as bumping, if you're bumped from a flight, you can receive compensation. Um, and that compensation varies on whether or not it's a domestic or an international flight. Um, the other consumer protections deal more so with things like 
notification if your flight's going to be canceled or um, providing you with um, food and water and a work operable bathroom if, say, you're experiencing a tarmac delay and things like that. I think, Liz, you, you said that you and your husband were traveling internationally and had uh, some some issues that were resolved favorably. Oh, right. Well, you know, first off, we were furious that we were so many hours late going from Houston to Frankfurt, Germany. That caused us not only to miss our flight, there, and we missed a second flight, and we were put on another flight, which was way later, and then that flight was delayed at least three hours, so we missed an entire day of our vacation, but I've got to hand it to Lufthansa. I guess the European Union made them pay through the nose. This is known as um, EU Regulation 261 of 2004, and yeah, it's um, it's a fairly comprehensive regime when it comes to denied boarding, delays, and cancellations. Um, airlines don't certainly don't like it because it means they have to actually pay in those situations, in many of those situations. But um, uh, I think passengers certainly appreciate it. All right. That, thank you so much, Professional Charles Stotler, for being on our show. We love having you part of our show. Thank you for having me. That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Our call screener today was Jabba Chapman, and our board engineer in Jackson has been Jay White. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Change of format today. Up next, MPB is going to be broadcasting gavel-to-gavel coverage of the U.S. Senate impeachment trial, but we hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 